You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And after last week, we got the big picture of Colossians. We're going to dive into the opening paragraph today and begin our study through the book verse by verse. So let's read uh, verses. We'll start in verse 1. We're so close to the beginning. We'll read Colossians 1, 1 through 8 to begin, and then we'll pray and see what the Lord has for us today. Paul, an apostle of Christ, of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it also among you, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Would you bow with me as we ask for the, the Spirit's help to illumine us as we study his word this morning. Father in heaven, thank you that the Spirit of God is here among us. He's a spirit of grace that is indwelling true believers and indwelling uh, a true church. And we pray that as we open the word now, that he would shine the light of the gospel in our hearts to give us understanding that Christ would be exalted and that as a result of our time today, we would treasure Christ more and more and walk closer with him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For several years now, our family has an evening routine that we practice before we send the boys to bed. We found that it's helpful to kind of give them something to wind down. It seems like sometimes 7.30 hits and they start winding up, which is like the exact wrong thing to do. But we have a family devotions time that we do. We've done it for several years. We read a Bible story together. We sing some of the hymns. In fact, we were learning, uh, my heart is filled with thankfulness this week in anticipation of our worship service. And then we pray together. And early on, we actually added one more thing to this routine. We added what we call thankful things. And it's, it's not real complicated. We just simply go around the family circle or down the line on the couch, uh, however, whatever shape we're in. And just ask each person of the family what is one thing that they are thankful for from that day. And as you can imagine with small children, uh, we've had our fair share of humorous moments over the years. Often, uh, one of the things that's mentioned is whatever we did right before bed, after supper, so if we played Legos or if we wrestled or if we read some books, watched a movie, that's usually a very popular item because we just did that. Uh, dinner is often a favorite thankful thing, even if they don't eat it, which always baffles Kate and I that they didn't want to eat their dinner. We had to force them to eat it, and then they're all thankful for it. Oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. Uh, for one of them, one, uh, the thankful thing was whatever he could see. So we would ask him, and he would go, uh, and you could see his eyes gravitate down toward his feet. And I think socks was the answer for like a solid month. My socks. I'm like, okay, it's great. Great, glad you get some socks. And sometimes something random gets stuck in their heads. My favorite is one of our two-year-olds. 
uh, who will remain nameless, uh, blurting out turkey melt. Apparently, Kate served them hot turkey sandwiches for lunch, and so for the next week and a half, turkey melt was the, the thankful thing, you know, from the last week. Okay, sounds good. Well, this habit of giving thanks actually goes back to a commitment Kate and I made before we were married. We read a book together entitled Choosing Gratitude uh, by Nancy Lita Moss. Maybe you've heard of that. And it really impacted us uh, in a way that that few other books have. One of the commitments we made together is that as we look to to build a family, I think we were engaged at the time, uh, we wanted to practice thankfulness no matter what we had or what we didn't have. And so by including this as part of our family devotions, we're trying to help our boys see that giving thanks isn't just a time of year. Oh, right, it's November 20th. We probably should start being thankful again. Giving thanks is not something we do only when we get something we want. Oh, well, we went to our friend's house today or we did something fun, so I'm thankful today. No, we can give thanks no matter what our circumstances are because giving thanks is a choice. It's not a natural thing that just happens to us. We can choose to be thankful. That's why giving thanks is a spiritual exercise. Giving thanks is a spiritual exercise, which means that we can cultivate the habit, the spiritual discipline of giving thanks in all circumstances. This is the whole point of the book that I mentioned, Choosing Gratitude. The author says this in the introduction. Gratitude is a choice that requires constantly renewing my mind with the truth of God's word, setting my heart to savor, we could substitute the word treasure, God and his gifts, and disciplining my tongue to speak words that reflect his goodness and grace until a grateful spirit becomes my reflexive response to all of life. Gratitude is not something that just happens to us. It is a spiritual attitude that we can cultivate by the grace of God. And actually, those of us who have been born again, who are truly saved, who know God, who are part of the family, we alone, of all the people on the earth, can actually practice gratitude because we have been rescued from our spiritual darkness. The question that I want to raise is this. How do we develop the habit of giving thanks? How do we develop this exercise? Is it simply close your eyes and grit your teeth and find something positive from today, even if it was a terrible day? Well, no, it can't be that. We can develop the habit of giving thanks really by drawing principles from Scripture, by seeing what Paul says here in this passage that guides us in our giving of thanks. We saw last week in Colossians that there are a number of themes that Paul is going to address. He talks a lot about Christ. He's going to talk a lot about our identity as believers in Christ. But one of the other themes that we see over and over again is the theme of thankfulness and thanksgiving. And he begins the book by really launching into this idea. In verse 3, the opening three words, we give thanks. And so what we'd like to do today is learn four principles from this passage for giving thanks. And we'll start in verse 3 with a fairly obvious principle. But as we'll see in a moment, we do need to mention it. Verse 3 says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And as we look at this paragraph, if you were actually to go study it out and try to diagram it, you would find that it's actually very difficult to diagram. Uh, I looked at one of them, and, and I think the diagram was about an 11 by 17 paper long, because all of the connections in it are a little bit goofy. But the main idea of the paragraph is right here at the beginning. The main point Paul is trying to get across to us is that he is giving thanks Now, who is he giving thanks to? Obviously, from verse 3, we are giving thanks to God, 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first step that we take, the first principle that we draw to giving thanks is to direct your thanks to God. Now that may seem fairly obvious, but bear with me for a moment. We give thanks to God because he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By, by calling him that, Paul is alluding to our spiritual salvation. The fact that, that God is the author of salvation. It was his plan that sent Jesus to earth to die on the cross for our sins. Salvation is certainly reason enough to give thanks to God because no matter how bad life is, we are still part of God's family. James 1.17 says that God is the giver of all good gifts. The Psalms over and over again talk about how God is sovereign over all, that all things are under his hand. So if God is sovereign over all and he's given us good gifts and he sent Jesus to be our savior, then certainly we ought to direct our thanks to him. Now, why is this such a big deal? I think it's actually because of the cultural moment in which we live. The setting of our nation is such that we have to make this point. Because our secular culture recognizes that they need to give thanks, but they don't want to give thanks to God. So they're they're trying to find some way to direct their thanks to something out there so they can feel better about themselves. The problem for our secular culture is that they don't know whom to give their thanks to. Uh, One example, this past November, an article in the New York Times wrote this, quote, but even for us secular humanists, Thanksgiving offers us a moment to appreciate whatever good this year wrought, even if by accident or chance. So what what our culture is saying is that we don't want to talk about God, we don't want to give him the credit for it, but we know that Thanksgiving has a positive effect on us, and and it it really is, is beneficial to us, so we should give thanks But who do we give thanks to? Am I going to say that my thanks goes to the universe at large, to the powers that be? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, what this article said, even if by accident or chance I thank the great accident that happened to us, are we out of our minds? Well, actually, we're not out of our minds. We're we're actually refusing to give thanks to God because of our rebellion against him. That's our culture at large. Romans 1 says that God's wrath against mankind is revealed because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, our culture's lack of appreciation, lack of gratitude to God is actually a sign that they have thrown God off and said, I don't want him anymore. When we as believers unashamedly give thanks to God and direct our thanks to God, we are making a bold statement that we know God and we give him glory as God and we're going to credit him for all that he has done in our lives. That, that actually is countercultural because our culture says, well, we can't give thanks to a God. We have to just give thanks to some entity out there. So yes, to to us, maybe, perhaps, this this first point would be fairly simple, direct your thanks to God, but I don't want us to underestimate the power of gratitude in a secular culture. When we stand up and give thanks, we're actually bearing witness to the truth. There's a second principle, though, in verse 3. Let's keep moving. Verse 3, again, says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. The second principle is that we express thanks in prayer. Paul says that he gives thanks praying always for you. 
whenever he prayed for these believers, he gave thanks. So let's not miss what Paul is saying here. Every time he prays for them, he thanks God. Every time. Every prayer in which he prays for these believers, he's thanking God for them. Not a prayer was offered where thanks was missing. How convicting is that? That every prayer for this people was filled with thanksgiving. I shudder to think how often we give thanks for other people. Because I look at my own prayer life and I know I fall woefully short of this standard. But imagine what would happen in our lives, in our hearts, in, in our relationships to one another if we started giving thanks always in prayer for one another. How would that affect our view of other people? How would that change the way we perceive them? How would that, that alter the way that, that we minister to them? I think we would find it would become a lot more difficult to be critical with them or upset at them when they don't do something we don't like because it's really hard to be mad at someone that you're thanking God for. <laughs> Paul's example shows us that thanksgiving should fill our prayers. And he says this in another text, Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thanksgiving, in this sense, is kind of like a, a, a seasoning, a flavor that we add to our prayers that, that enhances the whole dish. Perhaps you've used the acrostic ACTS as a prayer guide, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We're starting to use this on Sunday nights as well. Adoration and thanksgiving sometimes can be hard to separate, but they are different types of prayer. Here's the distinction between adoration and thanksgiving. Adoration focuses on who God is. It worships his name, his attributes, his character. Thanksgiving focuses on what God says he will do, that's his promises, or on what God has already done, that's his mighty works. So when we give thanks to God, we can thank him for his character, but that's really more worship. When we thank God, we are saying, God, you have promised to do this, thank you for that. Or you have done this, thank you for that. And in both instances, when we give thanks to God, whether it's for his promises or his mighty works, our faith is being built up because we are looking to, what God, to, to God and realizing that as we look into the future, he will do what he says he will do. And our faith is solidified. Our faith is strengthened. I would encourage you to use this model uh, of prayer. I use it in my own prayer time, ACTS, just spending a few minutes in each of these categories. I find it gives me a lot more focus to my prayer time rather than just kind of doing the spiritual barf in front of the Lord, like, oh, here's all my problems. But, but by but aligning myself with the, the truths of Scripture and reminding myself of who God is and confessing my sin, I'm, I'm in a much better frame of mind to go and, and ask God according to his will. At the very least, I would encourage you to incorporate thanksgiving into your prayer. Pick a promise of God this week to meditate on. Remember back into 2022. You remember that year? You know, we're like 22 days into 2023 and how quickly we forget, right? But think back to what God did for you on your behalf last year. And if you think hard enough, you'll find that, that the list of things that God has done for you is very long. And give him thanks for those things. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, we've started to use this model in our prayer time on Sunday nights. I invite you to join us for that because we're learning to pray together and instead of just having a prayer time where we spend 15 of the minutes getting requests together and three minutes time praying, we're spending 20 to 25 minutes in prayer. That's our goal at least. 
So we direct our thanks to God. We express our thanks in prayer. The third principle is also in verse 3, and it's the little word always. See it there at the end? Praying always for you. That shows us that we have to give thanks constantly. Practice giving thanks constantly. Uh, If you're holding a a modern translation, maybe the ESV or the NIV, you see that the word always is maybe at the beginning of the phrase for you. Some Bible translations, like the New King James or the New American Standard, put it at the end. And yet the, the meaning is the same either way. Paul is always giving thanks for these believers when he prays, and he prays for them a lot. He prays for them frequently. And this, to me, brings to mind 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It's the same idea. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, there's a question that a lot of younger people ask is, what is God's will for my life? Maybe you're a teenager, young adult, saying, "I, I don't know what God's will for me is. Well, the best place to start asking what is God's will for my life is to go into the scriptures and find that there are several passages like this one that actually name for you what the will of God is. And we would all do well to to remember that it is the will of God to give thanks in every situation. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God. The spiritual exercises of prayer and thanksgiving should be practiced so frequently that they're like breathing. Do you think about breathing? Well, now you are. The only time I think about breathing is when I just got spooked by something or when I'm exercising hard and I'm like, okay, you gotta breathe now. Breathe, breathe, breathe. But like 99.9% of the time, we don't think about breathing, right? We just do it. And that's a really good thing. Imagine if that was one of the first skills we had to learn as an infant, to breathe. Some of us wouldn't have made it. Uh, It's just part of us, though. God made that part of our innate ability. Prayer and thanksgiving should be developed into a habit like breathing, except it does not come naturally to us. Building a habit is awkward at first. It's like trying to write with your opposite hand, if you've ever done that. Uh, I've tried to sign a couple letters that way just to see how it would be. It's really weird because you're trying to think about every movement of your hand, and you're like, but I'm telling my hand to do that, and it's still not working. (laughs) What's wrong? Well, it's a new habit. It's awkward. It's difficult. And and prayer and thanksgiving may be awkward and difficult and and like an out-of-body experience at first. So if that's your experience, don't be discouraged by that. Building a habit takes time and intentionality, but over time, our minds adjust to the new habit, and we start to do it. And the blessing about these things is that you're not building a habit all on your own. The Spirit of God is giving you grace to do this because this is the will of God for you. If God says this is his will, then he will send his grace to enable you to do it. The goal of praying without ceasing and the goal of in everything give thanks is and may seem like an impossible standard for you. But remember, this is not a personality driven. There are just some people that are naturally joyful. We're not talking about that. This is a spiritual exercise, which means God can and will help us to develop these things. Could you say that you are close to the standard of always thanking God? Or would you have to admit that on the the scale of always thanking God on one side and always complaining about everything on the other, you're far closer to the complaint side? 
Well, I hope that we want to measure up to Paul's example. I hope that it's our prayer that we want to give thanks always. But anyone with life experience and and hurts in life knows that this is not going to be easy. This is a difficult thing to do. So how can we give thanks in all circumstances? Well, this is where lesson four comes in. And really, this is the rest of the passage. Verse three sets up what Paul is about to say in verses four through eight. Paul's secret to giving thanks is that he focuses his thanks on spiritual riches. Now, this is a really important part of the message. Obviously, I think every part of it's important, okay? But this is really crucial for us to understand. Paul doesn't want us to take a Pollyanna-type approach of just, just being happy. Just give thanks for something, why don't you? He chooses to focus on spiritual blessings so that he can legitimately give thanks to God at all times. There's a fundamental principle at play here. When we give thanks to God, we are bringing God into every situation of life. Since God is sovereign and wise and present in our world, he is always at work. He is always in control. Under the service of every situation, God is there. Nothing happens where God says, oops. Paul brings God into the picture by looking beyond what is happening to what is really going on. What is God doing in the spiritual realm? That's the key that unlocks for us the spiritual nature of giving thanks. Uh, Let me give you an example, try to make it clear for you. Earlier this week, we were unloading the van after a Costco run. One child, uh, who also will remain nameless, dropped a large jelly container, you know, like the costco size jelly container. So this is like three months' worth of jelly. Uh, Dropped it in the garage, and it shattered, and it was just, you know, it looked like a crater. (laughs) Well, what do we give thanks for in that situation? Okay, that maybe he didn't hurt himself. To me, as the parent in that moment, there was nothing I wanted to give thanks for. I was like, we just wasted six bucks because you were running. And I've told you how many times. I've told you once. I've told you a million times. Don't run, okay? But if we bring God into the situation, we can at least acknowledge through this little incident that he is growing us spiritually. He's growing my patience, certainly. He's teaching this little one to be more careful, to be respectful of property. So we're not just saying, well, something bad happened, let's give thanks for that. We're saying, yes, something unfortunate may have happened, but God is at work here. And how is God at work here? We have to look with spiritual glasses to see it. Let me give you another illustration. Uh, I've been sick this week, and I hate being sick because it slows you down. You feel uncomfortable. And, and the irony here that was not lost on me yesterday is that I hear, here I am sick and frustrated about my physical condition, and I'm trying to prepare a sermon on giving thanks. And I finally had to just say last night, Lord, I forgive me. <laughs> because in my sickness, is there something to give thanks for there? Yes, thanks for my runny nose. Thanks the fact that I can't talk. Well, maybe my wife was thanking God that I couldn't talk. But, but I'm not thanking God for any of that. Nor should we. Those are all things that have been brought about by the fall. But through that circumstance, God was at work. God was creating dependence on him. God was trying to get my attention. So so here's what I'm trying to say. Do we give thanks for suffering and hardship? Do we give thanks for sins and injustices, for inconveniences and disruptions in our lives? No, I don't think we do. 
Because when the brokenness of our world affects us, we don't try to find a silver lining in the pain. The pain is the result of the fall. I'm sure Job wasn't thankful for the death of his children. Instead, we choose to look beyond the brokenness and focus on the riches that we have in Christ. By his death and resurrection, Jesus is making all things new. And so even in the suffering of life, the cancer and the loss and the hurt and the pain, even in those things, God is at work to conform us more to the image of Christ. And for that, we can give thanks. When we focus on spiritual blessings, there is always something to give thanks for. That's why giving thanks is a spiritual habit. It's a spiritual principle. And this leads us to another important principle. What we are thankful for exposes what is important to us. What we give thanks for shows our priorities and our values. When I was a teenager into college, uh, Sunday afternoons were football and I realized uh, well into college that, that my attitude on Sunday night was actually being dictated by the results of the game at 1 o'clock. Now, being a Patriots fan growing up, I usually was pretty happy. And all of you Bronco fans are like, all right, all right, get, a, get on with it. But the point was, when my team won, I was happy. When my team lost, I was upset. And, and that meant that something else was controlling me other than the Spirit of God. I could give thanks when I got the result I wanted. But that exposed what was important to me. I wanted to win. And I wasn't even playing. I wasn't even there. I was watching the the game on TV. If we're thankful for things that we shouldn't be thankful for, it actually exposes what our priorities are. And if we say, well, I don't have much to give thanks for right here, then, then our hearts are set on the wrong things. Because if our hearts are set on treasuring Christ and on loving him, then in every situation in life, there is something to give thanks for. Paul gave thanks for what was important to him. And his priorities are seen here in verses 4 through 8. And even in these things, they didn't all just happen beautifully for him. As he talks about, we'll see, the, the spread of the gospel. How many beatings did Paul have? How many imprisonments? How many sleepless nights? And yet he's not saying thanks for the pain, Lord. He's saying thanks for the advance of the kingdom, advance of the gospel. So when we see what is spiritual in our world, when we see what God is doing, we can give thanks because of the spiritual riches. There are three reasons that Paul gives thanks to God, and it's in verses 4 through 8. The first one is in verses 4 through 5. Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Paul gives thanks for spiritual fruits. He mentions three virtues here, faith, love, and hope. And these three qualities are really uh, uh, linked together over and over again in the New Testament. We see them time and time again. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, talks about faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. So Paul mentions these three things as the reason he's giving thanks. Well, he gives thanks for their faith in Jesus, That's the logical starting place, right? Because the entrance into the Christian life is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how a person is saved. Question, do we stop living by faith once we're saved? No. 
2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. So we could say that the whole Christian experience is lived in the realm of faith. If you want a footnote here, that's Hebrews 11's message. The whole Christian experience is lived by faith. That we are believing what God has said and trusting him for it and walking according to the way that he's called us to do. Though Paul had never met these believers in Colossae, he gave thanks for their faith in Jesus and their lives of walking by faith right now. And there's a principle here. We can give thanks for the faith of others when they receive Christ. Have you ever met another believer, maybe on vacation or traveling, just you kind of randomly meet someone, you find out they're a believer in Jesus and they're, they're, they're truly born again. And there's like this, this kinship that you have with them even, you met, even though you met them like two minutes ago. There's a supernatural bond that we have when we are in the body of Christ. And so whenever someone else expresses faith in Jesus, we can give thanks for them. So set aside the personality traits, per, set aside the, the annoying quirks, that we see in one another, if someone is a believer in Jesus, that's reason enough to give thanks for them. Well, the second fruit that Paul mentions is, found in verse four, it is love. Paul gives thanks for their love for all the saints. When love for one another grows, that's a reason to give thanks. Well, notice here that that Paul calls us saints. And if you were to go out on the street and ask people what a saint was, I'm guessing many people would say it's someone that's been venerated by the Catholic Church, right? But, but the New Testament calls every single believer a saint. So if we wanted to, we could afterward walk up and greet one another and say, St. Jim and St. John and St. Carol and St. Judy, for instance. You could. Uh, just like you could call your pastors bishops because that's the same word for pastor. It's a little funny though, right? Bishop Zach just doesn't have the same ring to it. Uh, we're all saints. The word saint means holy one. The Bible calls us all holy ones because of our faith in Jesus. And as saints, as holy ones, it is our responsibility, it's our call to love one another. This, as Jesus said, is the distinguishing mark of his followers, right? John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you, finish it for me, Love one another, if you love one another. So our love for one another is countercultural. We don't love because of the benefits that they bring to us or the commonalities that we share with them. We love one another because we are in the family of God together. We do need to acknowledge that though this is to be our defining quality, loving one another is difficult at times, right? Some Christians are hard to love, <laughs> The longer you stay at one church, the more you know people's quirks, the easier it is to get frustrated with them. So when our love for one another grows, that, that's, that's not a natural thing. That's, that's the spirit of God at work in our midst. And if God is working in our midst and our love is growing for one another, that is certainly a cause, a reason to give thanks. Paul then third mentions that the hope that they have is reserved in heaven, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Hope here is the anchor for our faith and love. Hebrews 11.1 1 makes that clear. Now faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Notice the description of hope here in verse 5. 
It is laid up for you in heaven. It is reserved for us. It's been put away for safekeeping. And, and whenever I hear of a hope that has been laid away or a hope that is reserved, my mind runs to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You notice all of those descriptions of our hope that shows that our hope is secure? It's incorruptible and undefiled and unfading and reserved and kept by the power of God. Our hope can never be taken away. God has safeguarded it by his omnipotent power. Hope is, is, is a whole other message in and of itself because hope, hope is, is that reality that carries us through the hardships of life. It, it's, it's the belief that we will conquer in the end and it's the ability to live by that belief. It's hope that lifts our eyes to the future and sees glory on the other side. And so Paul says that when you have hope through the gospel, he's gonna give thanks for that. We may lose loved ones, we may lose possessions or things of earthly value, but the thing that is most important about us, our eternal hope can never be taken away. These are the blessings, these are the fruits that Paul mentions that he's giving thanks for. Are these the same fruits that are in our midst? As you look around at your fellow believers, can you give thanks for their faith, for their love, for their hope? Yes, 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 yes. In every situation, yes. That even when they're in trial, you can give thanks that the trial can't take away their hope. That even when they're under affliction, that their faith can carry them through. That even when they're being buffeted and attacked by Satan, that the love that they have for Christ will carry them through. We can give thanks for these things. But secondly, Paul thanks God for the spiritual riches that is found in the advance, the progress of the gospel. This is in verses five and six. Let's start in the middle of the verse. Of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Paul is giving thanks for the advance of the gospel. Well, how did the Colossians hear about faith and hope and love in Christ Jesus? They heard about it in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is the message of truth. It is true. It really happened, and the effects of it are going to happen. Verse 6 rejoices over the spread of this true gospel to the Colossians. It came to them just like it has come to all the world. And we could say the same thing. It's come starting in Jerusalem because that's where Jesus died and rose. And it has traveled continents and, and across oceans and come across this continent to this location. That the gospel has come to us too. Paul's own ministry played a huge role in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then he also mentions the transforming effects of the gospel among them. He says, it is bringing forth fruit. It's bringing forth fruit. Now, if you're holding a modern translation, you'll see an additional phrase because some of the earliest manuscripts that we have include an additional word. So like the ESV and the NIV, for instance, give 
it bears forth fruit and increases. It increases. The gospel bears fruit and increases in Colossae just like it did in all the world. And what's the significance of these two ideas of bearing fruit and increasing? It seems to tie back all the way to the book of Genesis, where in Genesis 1 before the fall and in Genesis 9 after the flood, God's mandate to humans was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and increase all over the face of the earth. And I think what Paul is doing is he's making a subtle illusion to show that there is a new aspect of human flourishing taking place. Not of human growth and human reproduction, but of spiritual growth and spiritual reproduction through the gospel. We are called new creatures in Christ, and it's because of this new hope that we have been given through the gospel. The second Adam has come, bringing a life of hope and joy and peace. And so when the gospel bears fruit and increases, it's actually doing what we were commanded to do all along which foreshadows the time where we will be able to do what we've been called to do, which is to increase and flourish in the new heavens and the new earth. The Colossians heard this gospel. They received the grace of God. And when you read this text, you can almost feel Paul's excitement bursting off the page. His passion is to spread the gospel and preach Christ whatever the cost may be. And we know that that Paul paid the price, did he not? What was the cost of him traveling on these mission trips, of going all over the ends of the earth? 2 Corinthians 11 talks about all the sufferings he had, and that wasn't even the end of it. He didn't write that at the end of his life. He wrote that in the middle of his life. He ended up dying as a martyr, having his head cut off for the sake of the gospel. This is, his, this is Paul's passion. He rejoiced when the gospel spread. He certainly wasn't giving thanks for the beatings he took. But if the beating led to the spread of the gospel, what, what does Paul say? He says, in that, I will rejoice. In Philippians 1, he says that some are preaching Christ of envy and, co- and contempt for me. But I don't care about my reputation. All I care about is that the gospel goes forward. So in that, I will rejoice over and over again. Do we have the same burden to see the gospel proclaimed in every corner of the earth? Are we giving our lives to advancing the gospel in our community? What does this look like practically? Well, I think if we get to the heart of the matter, the question is this, do we care about seeing the gospel spread and seeing people come to salvation in Christ? And the obvious answer is, well, of course I do. But does our lives back up that confession? If the gospel's advance is your priority, how are you being active in evangelism? How, what opportunities are you taking to bring the truth of the gospel to someone else? If, if that's your priority, you will take seriously this responsibility to share Christ. We talk sometimes about our geographic community. I've, I've put the square around our church up. But what about our relational community, the people that we mingle with? God has placed you amidst the neighbors and in the school and in the job that you have with those people for a reason. You have the contacts you have because God's placed them near you. Are you looking to share the gospel with these friends and acquaintances? 
Another area that's near to my heart is missions. If the spread of the gospel is our priority, are we investing our financial resources into missions over and above the tithe to the local church? And if not, then, then why not? What would happen if we invested our money into people who will bring the gospel to the far corners of the globe? One of my burdens is that men and women would be trained and ministered to here and then called out from our midst to go and, and men to pastor churches and, and ladies to go be lay members and, and, and the wives of pastors and, and people to go all around the world to be missionaries, to bring the gospel to other regions. Just like it's spread in Colossae and just like it's spread here, how can God use us to spread it somewhere else? Here's one way to to look at this. God may not be calling you to go personally, but you can share the fruit of it by support and giving. And if we Americans would just stop and think about it, how many of us could skip going out for coffee or dinner one time a month and invest that into missions? How much disposable income do we waste on streaming services, you know, four or five of them, on target runs, on Amazon purchases? I'm really stepping on toes now. But how much disposable income are we really just blowing? That we could say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go get something that I just want to have. I'm going to actually send that and fund a missions work. I'm going to invest that in the cause of the gospel all around the world. These are challenging questions, I think, that we have to wrestle with. Well, the final spiritual blessing that Paul gives thanks for is found in verses 7 through 8. He writes, As you also learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Paul gives thanks for the faithful ministry of other Christians, for the ministry of faithful Christians. Well, how did the Colossians learn the gospel? How did the gospel come to them? It was through this man's ministry, this man Epaphras. Look at how Paul refers to Epaphras. And substitute your name in there. Would you want this to be your epitaph in Scripture? A dear fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ, their messenger who declared to Paul their love in the Spirit. Those are wonderful descriptions. Paul had a very high view of those who faithfully labored in the Lord's work. In fact, if you read the New Testament and look at all the people that traveled with him or were associated with his ministry in some way, there's there's around 75 or more. And many of those individuals were not pastors and teachers. I mean, think about Luke, who is the beloved physician. We don't know of Luke doing any preaching. He might have. But there are many men and women who did not preach that were part of Paul's team. I I love this because it shows us that, that the gospel can be spread not just by pastors and teachers, but by every single Christian. Our church has many people who serve faithfully. Some of you give hours of your week in multiple ministries serving one another, serving our church. Our pastoral staff thanks God for you. I thank God for you. It's a blessing to have. There are some churches where basically nobody serves. And we have a number of people here that love to give the Lord their their time and their energy. That's wonderful. And if you're not involved, I would simply ask, why not? Why, why wouldn't you want to, to minister to one another, to get serving in the lives of one another? 
There are several wonderful results that happen when we give thanks for the faithful ministry of other Christians. First, it helps us to see that others are more important than we are. Philippians chapter 1 calls us to look out for the needs of others, to esteem them as better than ourselves. A hard command to follow. But when we give thanks to others, we're looking outside of us. We're looking beyond us. We're looking to other people and saying, God, thank you for them. And by looking to their needs, we see that others are more important than ourselves. Second, giving thanks reminds us that we're not irreplaceable. Sometimes we succumb to this thinking in our weaker moments that if, uh, if whew, God didn't have me, wow, he'd be, he'd be bad off. Well, let's remind ourselves, if God can use Balaam's donkey, he probably doesn't need us. But the fact that he uses us is a sign of his tremendous grace. The fact that God says, yeah, I'm going to take those broken, weak people who sin a lot and who clamor over earthly things, even though their hearts try to love me, I'm going to take them, the weak people of the world, and I'm going to create something so spectacular that the world says, what's going on there? We're not irreplaceable. God uses us out of his grace. Third, giving thanks strengthens our love for others. As I mentioned earlier, it's really hard to resent someone we give thanks for. If someone has hurt you or offended you and you're struggling with bitterness toward them, I would encourage you to pray and actually find something to give thanks to God for them. Say, no, I I couldn't do that. Why not? Do you want to be bitter? But when you have to get alone with God and say, Lord, thank you for so-and-so because of this and because of this and because of this like I've had to do. God cultivates in your heart a spirit where you're not bitter. This is one of the solutions, one of the medicines that help us, helps us to overcome bitterness, Thank, giving of thanks. So when we practice the spiritual exercise of giving thanks, we will start to build a church culture that loves one another, that thinks more highly of others, and that is eager for the gospel's advance. Is that the type of church you want to be involved in? Let me read them again, just to make sure we, we don't, don't miss it. We love one another. We think highly of others, more highly than ourselves, and we're eager for the spread of the gospel. Is that the type of church we want to be involved in? <laughs> Absolutely. This habit of giving thanks can be a major force to help us achieve one of our ministry goals this year. Goal number four is this. Cultivate a vibrant, healthy church culture. Cultivate a vibrant, healthy church culture. A healthy church culture includes the regular giving of thanks, where we rehearse regularly and sincerely reasons to God to give thanks and thanksgiving to one another. Let me close with this. How wonderful would it be if guests walked into our church and as they thought about our church and thought about the spirit here, they said, there's a spirit of gratitude here that I've not felt anywhere else before. What a testimony that would be. What an opportunity we would have to minister to them and to advance the gospel both here and abroad. Let's ask the Lord for his help with this, shall we? Lord, I confess my own weakness in this area. It's easy to think about Thanksgiving as being confined to the month of November. or after big events or key moments. 
And yet Paul rebukes that thinking right here. He shows us that giving of thanks is something that he could do from jail because that's where he was. He gives thanks for these believers because if you're working in their lives, and he expresses that over and over again constantly in prayer, may we take to, to heart these lessons today, Father. Bear us up. This is a standard that seems impossible, but we know that your spirit gives grace and that you've promised that those who rely on you and depend on you will mount up with eagle's wings. So give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.